I remember the sunflowers just kind of hitting my face as I'm running for my life. And they released the dogs and they started shooting and they were alerting the whole border patrol there on, on that area. So we're talking about a few, several minutes altogether of time when I don't know exactly what happened. All I knew is I was praying and running. And I hate running, so it was, you know, one of those things that uh, I'm running literally for my life because if I'm stopping, these guys are shooting in me in the back and, and my life is over. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Now, 2017 was one of the hardest and maybe the hardest year of my life. So many exciting things happened as well. I'm so grateful for it, as hard as it was, but I love the new year and I'm so pumped for 2018. So before I introduce today's guest, I have a quote for you, a quote that is intended to motivate the hell out of you as you begin here in this first week of the year. Genius human and author Neil Gaiman said the following, I hope that in this year to come, you make mistakes because if you are making mistakes, then you are making new things, trying new things, learning, living, pushing yourself, changing yourself, changing your world. You're doing things you've never done before. And more importantly, you're doing something. I hope actually right now on your podcast app, go back 30 seconds, click that, that button. That's usually the, that takes you back a few seconds. Go back. Listen to that quote again. What a fantastic quote. What an amazing source of inspiration. When I read that, I got chills, I got goosebumps because it literally embodies what I want to see happen in the new year, the things that I want to do, the ways that I want to push myself. I hope that's true for you, for everyone that's part of the Let's Give a Damn family. So I promised you an episode today with just me talking for 20 to 30 minutes, answering your questions, uh, inspiring you, giving you context for what's to come, talking about some of our guests, some of the plans that we have. It's, it was going to be a great episode, and I st I'm still going to do it, but that's not happening today. And some of you may be extremely happy about that. If that's you, don't raise your hand. I don't want to see it. But here's why I'm skipping it. You are listening to this podcast, first couple days of the year. We have just launched into 2018. We have left, for many of us, we have left behind one of the hardest years of our lives maybe with just um, societal and political things that are happening. And so going into 2018, I wanted to give you a boost of inspiration, a boost of motivation by sharing with you a conversation that I think is going to rock your world. I think it's going to inspire and help you in so many ways. So we are going to do that episode with me answering some of your questions. I got some great questions online and through other uh, mediums, but we're not going to do that today. I'm going to share a conversation with you that I think is going to inspire you. One more thing before I introduce our guest for today, I am going to bring two interns onto the Let's Give a Damn team this year. Two interns, one that helps me with social media and one that helps me with video work, different kinds of video work, primarily stuff that will go on social media as well. So social media intern, video intern, preferably in Nashville where I live, but I'm open to remote, especially for the social media intern. If you're interested in learning more about what that means and more about what it would mean to be part of my team, a team that is growing, 
well, in just in so many different ways, in ambition, definitely, and in the content we're trying to put out, let me know. I would love to talk with you more about it, see what you can bring to the team, and hopefully, potentially recruit you to our team. So email me, hello at nicklapara.com. I would love to talk with you about being part of the team. Okay, for today's guest, my friend, Ben Sterchuk. I chose this conversation as the first podcast of the year very, very intentionally. I want to motivate you. I want you to be inspired. I want you to get pumped up, and Ben's story is just the story for that. I don't ever try to give too much away about my guests and our conversation in the intro. Some podcast hosts spend five minutes introducing their guests, and I wonder why I'm still around for the rest of the conversation by the time they get finished, because I now know everything about them. I don't wanna do that, and I'm not gonna do that here today. I will say these couple of things. This story involves prison, it involves homelessness, and it involves someone getting shot at. I'm serious. I told Ben during our conversation that parts of his story remind me of The Great Escape. Have you ever watched that movie? The World War II movie with Steve McQueen and Charles Bronson. Growing up, that was one of my dad, my brothers, and I, we would sit down and watch that movie once, twice a year for years on end. I loved that movie. This had a little bit of that flavor for parts of the story. This is an incredible story of bravery, resilience, perseverance, and passion. And I wanted to point those out because all of these things are required at some point if you're going to give a damn. So there's lots to learn in this conversation. Last note before I begin, the audio is a bit rough and I apologize. I was in the studio recording four conversations in one day a few weeks ago and something went wrong with my mic for the last two and Ben's in my conversation was part of that. We didn't know until days later when we went through the audio files. You'll be able to hear it well, so don't worry, don't shut this off. It's not gonna sound terrible, it just isn't studio mic quality. So I just wanted to give you a heads up because I aim to bring you quality on every front and I failed a bit this time. If you want, I'll give you your money back. That's a joke because this is free. Okay, I'm finished. My name is Nick Lapara. This is the Let's Give a Damn podcast and here's my conversation with Ben Sterchuk. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I have Mr. Ben Sterchuk on the line today. I'm so excited to have you here, Ben. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Nick. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so pumped about your story, about what you've done with your life and kind of what you're doing overseas as well. So a lot that we're going to talk about in this conversation. What I would love is for us to get some context about who you are. Um, Sterchuk is not uh, the Smiths or the Joneses. So there's a story here that I'm excited to hear about Yeah, your origins, where you've come from. What I'd love here right at the beginning, right at the onset of our conversation is for you to take me back as far as you want to go and give me a framework, give us a framework for your life, the, the things that made you who you are today, the people, places, things, circumstances that yeah, made you who you are, like literally today, because so many things made you that way. So why don't we start that way, spend a few minutes as long as you need to uh, sharing some context with us. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to share with you, Nick, and with your audience. Uh, yeah, uh, Sterchuk is not a, a, a typical American name. It does have a Romanian uh, background and heritage, um, specifically the northern part of Romania. Apparently, there is some link to Ukrainian uh, background to a certain degree, I guess. But um, yeah, that's kind of what, what the name is from. But uh, I was born and raised in Romania. 
about 10 uh, kilometers from the border with Ukraine. So that, that, that's where I spent the first uh, 14 years of my life. I mean, a lot of who I am today, uh, obviously, originates not just in the fact that I was born there, but in the circumstances of my life there with, uh, with my family, uh, you know, being in that part of the world, being part of that the tradition, the Romanian traditional family, but also being part of the Pentecostal traditional uh, family there. So uh, when I get asked that question, uh, uh, a couple of things that come to mind uh, I usually want to share. And uh, one is uh, I was born in a, in a Christian family um, with a father and mother that loved each other and loved the Lord and loved their kids. But they had the unfortunate uh, or, the, or the misfortune to be uh, alive in an era where they had to do work that was uh, unhealthy and, and uh, uh, led my father to, to become sick and have tuberculosis. And in that process, basically, he got sick to the point where he couldn't work anymore. So while um, my mother was at home raising the kids, uh, he was in different uh, sanatoriums and hospitals and and the reason I mentioned that is because in some ways, even though I had two parents for uh, most of my childhood, uh, a lot of my time was spent being raised by my mother. So in a way, uh, like a single mother that raised uh, the nine of us kids. And uh, when I was nine years old, my father passed away from tuberculosis and uh, complications from uh, lung disease from working in mines. So in many ways, that impacted me um, both as a Christian and, and as a professional later on in life and the, uh, the way I chose the career and the, uh, and the nursing profession that I ended up in because of that experience with my father being sick. So um, as a nine-year-old, obviously, you know, I, I had to pose questions as uh, why would a loving God allow uh, a father of nine kids to die and to, to be taken away and not be uh, there for them? So uh, some of my uh, teenage years, my adolescent years, were, I guess, to a certain degree, rebellious just in trying to find an answer to that question. Obviously, uh, the answers to all of those existential questions are found in Christ and uh, typically in a, in a dramatic encounter with Christ, which I was blessed to experience several years later from my years of adolescence when I actually was in a in a prison, in a federal prison, in uh, the age of 20. Uh, by then, I was already married, and my wife and I had already uh, had our, our first child, uh, our son, Flavius. And so uh, still asking questions, still trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. In this moment uh, in life, I had the privilege to encounter Christ and experience that uh, freedom that can only be uh, acquired or received from Jesus, from that encounter with, with Jesus. Uh, ironically, while I was in a prison. Uh, so, oh, wow. So now, um, to give context. Uh, yes, we're going to need some context. I wasn't robbing banks or any of those things. I was uh, simply attempting to go to towards a place or a country where there was freedom. For me, at that time, um, my wife and I had uh, many conversations and discussed on how to look at the future how do we raise our family? How do we raise our, our kids in an environment where uh, simply uh, there is oppression, there is persecution, there is no economic benefits or advantages because we were in communist Romania. And uh, whether you are a nominal Christian or a real Christian, you are persecuted nonetheless. And uh, opportunities were denied to you because of that label of, of Christianity. We decided that 
the real freedom can only be achieved in the West and hopefully uh, in America. So that was the dream. That was the the desire. That was the vision to uh, to escape Romania and and uh, go to America. Now, of course, for people who live in communist countries or in in very oppressive types of environments, one of the issues is that there's not a lot of uh, access to information. So you know, you you dream about a place, you dream about freedom, you dream about uh, all these incredible opportunities, but there's no concrete idea of what that is because access is denied. And, and of course, we're also talking about 1980s, uh, late 80s. So there's no internet. There's no uh, none of those uh, tools that we have now, or or mediums or platforms that we have now. So the books that uh, the communist government would allow the the schools to to use would be. Uh, very edited, cleaned uh, books that would uh, make communism sound amazing. Any kind of uh, democratic uh, system or capitalist system or anything that is not communist sound really uh, terrible. So uh, America was portrayed in very negative terms to us uh, school kids growing up. And yet uh, there were some um, uh, books that here and there we would have access to and uh, be able to get some information or or some illegal radio access, like uh, Free Europe and some of that. So, so we had a little bit of uh, idea of what America was and what freedom meant in that country, but not enough to have concrete, clear understanding of that. But nonetheless, uh, the desire was to get freedom, to be in a place where you're free. You're free to go wherever you want. You're free to say what you think, free of oppression or persecution and and just be able to take care of your family. And that was our desire. So at that time, I was a, I was a train mechanic uh, working for the railroad in Romania. So uh, I figured out a way with one of my buddies to use that to get closer to the border and, and uh, escape Romania towards Yugoslavia. And so to make a, a very long and stressful story short, how I ended up in prison, I was clearly unsuccessful in, in attempting to escape but in that process, as we got closer to the border, about 100 yards from the borders uh, of Romania to Yugoslavia, we were apprehended by the Romanian uh, soldiers. And I have this uh, image uh, that I probably never forget, you know, just uh, seeing the AK-47s and, and the soldiers right above us and, and telling us to, to surrender, otherwise they'll shoot us and uh, calling us traitors and calling us all these names because we simply wanted to leave the country towards something that we thought was better. After uh, a number of weeks of being in different jails, but I, w- when I speak about that time of, of my life, I do mention that the first 10 days of being in prison there, there were uh, 12 individuals in a cell for two people. So the conditions were just incredibly difficult and they were really meant to just uh, break people and just uh, break their hearts and break their minds and just be able to uh, get to them at a psychological and emotional level. So months later, when I was uh, already at the federal prison in one of the major cities there, in prison, you have a lot of time to think, to consider, to contemplate, um, you know, to, to take a look at your life, to... And so in that process, I was able to, to really think about my wife at home and our, our baby son, uh, Flavius, and uh, how uh, my ways or my desires, my steps, things that I've planned 
ended up with me in prison and my wife at home alone raising a child. So uh, it was really devastating. So I had to do a lot of uh, introspective type of uh, just self-analysis and see what I am. And, and in the end, I just broke down and said, Lord, I don't have the answers, but it is clear to me that my ways are not good. My ways are leading to dead ends and to devastation to my family. And I simply surrender uh, my life to Christ. And I ask, ask directly that Jesus will come into my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. And I remember that, uh, that night uh, in 1988 in that prison and the fall of 1988 and just hitting rock bottom as the American expression is. And just, there was nowhere else to go. I was in this cell with uh, 39 other uh, inmates that were there for actual crimes. And they were looking at 20 years in prison and 10 and for all kinds of hideous crimes. And here I am, this, this guy that just wanted to go towards freedom. And yet here I'm sharing a cell with these guys and the, the tension and the terror that, that was in that place and the, the devastation of humanity and the deplorable uh, acts of humanity that I witness, you know, are, are just incredibly difficult to even express or explain. But in that, I was able to ask Jesus to just come and meet me, encounter me. And he did. And I remember that night uh, when in that very dark place, uh, emotionally and, and literally dark and cold and the darkest of, of, of humanity, Jesus came to me in that place, in that environment. And I remember that sense of light and a sense of joy that I experienced, a sense of freedom that I've experienced that, that I've never experienced before. And um, it was very difficult to, dis- to describe because I was like, I'm not used to this feeling. What, what is this? And it was it's what, I, what I later read in the, in the Bible. It was the, the joy of salvation, the joy of of the Lord, the joy of salvation of, of our soul when Christ encounters you and you have that incredible opportunity to, to experience what it means to have to be renewed, be a new person in Christ. And that was that was that moment for me. And Christ has changed me, has changed my mentality, changed my mind, my the way I was thinking, and just kind of rewired me all together. And I, I truly felt like a new person, a new creation uh, in Christ. As a result, it just changed my family, changed the future and everything else afterwards. To kind of jump ahead a little bit, my wife was uh, at home, obviously, with our baby. Uh, when I was released a few months later, uh, I was able to um, spend the next six to nine months or so um, just barely scraping by and providing for my family. But in, in June of 1989, I actually uh, agreed with my wife that uh, because of the uh, security issues that we were experiencing, I was the only individual in that city of 300,000 people that the secret police were following. Our apartment was under surveillance 24 hours a day. They would come and pick me up in the middle of the night and not bring me home for three, four days or nights. And my wife would never know what I was and what, what they would do to me. And so we figure that there's no future other than trying again, trusting God that God will open a door for, for me to escape Romania and later to be able to bring my wife and, and baby through the Red Cross or some uh, international organization where uh, they would reunite my family. So I did that. I, I planned with some other friends uh, going towards Hungary. 
in the summer of uh, 1989. And um, by the grace of God, after a long night of walking along a river towards Hungary, uh, I was able to uh, get to within eyesight of the actual border of Romania to Hungary. And I remember this time of around 6, 6.30 in the morning, middle of June, where the three of us were just getting ready to cross two more fields to go to, uh, to, to actually cross the border. So one of the guys that was with me went up on, the, on this little hill to see if it's safe to cross. And uh, we waited. He wasn't coming back. So me and my other buddy, uh, Theo, we actually went up on that little hill too and, and saw the soldiers coming from the left side. In that moment, we had to make a decision whether we're going to make a run for it or not, whether we're going to be simply uh, arrested or what's going to happen. So I told him in that moment that we're just, we're going to run for it. Or wow. We're simply going to go for it. Yeah. So uh, I started running. I, I, there were two fields. There was a, a corn field and there was the sunflower. And I, even as I'm speaking to you right now, I have this image because you know in june they're still they're pretty growing and when you're when you're talking about that level um you know it's just they're about at the uh, the height of a human so i remember the sunflowers just kind of hitting my face as i'm running for my life and they released the dogs and they started shooting and uh they were alerting the whole border patrol there on on that uh area so you know i mean we're talking about a, a few several minutes altogether of time when i don't know exactly what happened all i knew is i was just praying and running and i hate running so it was <laughs> you know one of those things that uh, i'm running literally for my life because if i'm stopping these guys are shooting in me in the back and and my life is over and the alternative was to be captured again and uh, I was facing about 10, 15 years in prison for a second offense. And I wasn't going to do that. That was just simply not, not an option. So uh, I remember from a movie that if you ran in zigzag, they can't really shoot you. So I guess that was the contribution of my movie's uh, memories. So I, I ran in zigzag and... By the grace of God, I, I remember actually crossing the border. There are six feet of freshly plowed dirt soil, black soil that I stepped one, two, and the third one was already on, on the ground in, in Hungary. And, you know, there's, there's no words to describe what it feels to, after all those attempts and the challenges, the beating and the torture and all these things that, that I've experienced, to have the sense that. I'm now, I just stepped into onto this land that is free. There is wow. no oppression. There's no, nobody's going to beat me up. Nobody's going to put me in prison. But I kept running. I kept running because I didn't want to have any kind of uh, uh, risk, you know. So I kept running towards some woods that I saw there and uh, already in the Hungarian territory. And uh, my buddy kept following me. And the, the third guy was already uh, apprehended. He was captured. Me and the second guy, Theo, were able to actually get to the woods. Of course, in the meantime, the Hungarian patrol is hearing all these Romanians shooting towards Hungary as they were shooting after us. So they're getting alerted. And all of a sudden, I mean, everything is going wild there because you have two countries that are protecting their borders. 
and this mayhem and sirens were going off and sounds were blurring and and machines it was just and we are in the woods now on the hungarian territory hiding uh, trying to cover ourselves with leaves and you know like rambo or something but hours later we get uh, we get arrested by the hungarian patrol because they had dogs and they were able to trace us in the woods and they find us long story short there basically uh, three days, three nights of interrogation. We told the story. I had documentation to show them and the ways in which I was persecuted or oppressed, that I was in prison, all of those things. And uh, three days later, they gave me a thousand forints, their currency, and they said, go to Budapest and good luck. Wow. So we walk out of this building uh, in a courtyard, me and my buddy, and or we're looking and I say to him, I don't, I don't know if this is real or just a test, but when we made it to the gate, we just started running like crazy because we didn't know if it was real or not. So we ran to the bus. So we took a bus. So we asked uh, where the bus is for Budapest and uh, took the bus to Budapest and were able to actually make it to the Budapest uh, capital of, of Hungary. And um, for five, six weeks, lived on the streets just as a homeless person trying to survive uh, sleeping in parks and places like that and uh, somehow we survived that uh, that period too unfortunately in hungary at that time there was no refugee camp and we weren't able to get any ways to get into uh, in, you know to get any kind of uh, access to a visa or something to come to the united states but i uh, i was able to find a way to escape from hungary into austria because I heard there is a refugee camp in Vienna. So because of my background uh, working with trains, um, I was able to actually find the right moment. There was a, I was watching trains leaving from the Budapest train station in, towards Vienna. And um, I got into one of these trains. I, I hid up in the attic, uh, lack of a better word, to right behind the water basin above the toilet. Three hours later, I found myself in Vienna, getting out of the train once again in a new country with no nowhere to go and didn't speak the language and just trusting the Lord that he will find a way for me to connect with somebody so that I can make it to the refugee camp. And so for about oh, maybe uh, a couple of weeks or so, um, again, sleeping in, in, on the street and in parks and eating behind restaurants. And I survived somehow, but through a series of real uh, divine intervention and miraculous uh, connections, I was able to find a way to the refugee camp outside the city of Vienna and connected there. And uh, I submitted myself to the authorities. I, I told them my story and um, I applied for uh, as a refugee to come to the United States. So that's that part of the journey. Um, wow. From Romania to Austria, from communist oppressive uh, regime and environment to an actual free country. So my first question is, when is the movie coming out? Because I feel like I just heard uh, a different version of like the movie Great Escape. Grew up watching The Great Escape. I don't know if you've ever watched that movie with Steve McQueen. Right, right. Yeah. So I just feel like that just happened in a way. That is a crazy, crazy story. I can definitely say that no other podcast guest has ever been 
chased by gunfire as they were trying to escape their communist country. So that's pretty nuts. That's a crazy story. I'm glad you, I mean, I'm obviously very glad that you made it out alive. And um, so how did your family get out, right? So your wife and Flav are still in, and I can say Flav because I know Flav. Um, First of all, Flavius is a great name. I don't know how you came up with Flavius, but (laughs) when Flav's and my like mutual friend, Tyler, when he first said, oh, I'm going to visit my friend Flav in Seattle, I was like, wait, what kind of a name is that? And that's the coolest name ever. So (laughs) thank you. Thank you. So good job with Flavius. But um, did you go back for them or did they come to you or how did that work? Well, um, obviously, uh, while all of this was happening and I was escaping and and on the, on the way to towards Austria, my wife was still at home with, with the baby. And basically they, uh, now the secret police were just harassing her and threatening her because they said, well, you knew that he's going to escape, so why didn't you tell us and all of that? So now her life was really in danger because they simply wouldn't leave us alone because we stood up against the government and against the communists and all this. So we had two options there. Basically, option number one was for me to wait until I actually got a visa and moved to the United States and then apply for the family reunification, which could have been three to five years. Or send somebody, find an illegal way to get her out of communist Romania. So uh, because uh, of the urgency of the situation and her unsafe uh, environment, I decided that we're going to take a chance and uh, we're going to try to get her out uh, illegally. And then we found out that if she makes it out out of the border, uh, over the border here into Austria, then they would allow us to bring our child within six months through the Red Cross. So we made actually several attempts to get her to, to cross the border, but all of them failed. And then at the end of November, we made a final attempt. I said, but, you know, this because the winter is coming. So I, I made arrangements with someone to actually go uh, all the way to the border of Hungary and Romania. Wow. And for her to be with uh, a friend of mine um, to swim over a river from a particular city uh, close to the border in Romania, swim for six to eight hours into Hungary. So, you know, and my wife was not a swimmer at that time. So she uh, trusted me. And I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, being on the phone and using code names and because her phone was, uh, was, was tapped. And the risk was in every little second of, of our conversation and every step that she would take. She would have to go, you know, leave the baby with her parents, go to the city, take a train, take a bus, take a, you know, so, so she would lose the, the tail and the followers. And so she, she comes to this uh, agreement and with, uh, with two friends of mine, they, they, they start on this uh, swim for six hours. And unfortunately, just in the interest of time, unfortunately, one of them gets tired, gets close to the to the shore, and he scares some ducks that fly out, which alerted the patrols, and so they get apprehended. So she and and that first friend uh, get arrested. The third person, the other guy, he kind of waits back, so he keeps swimming more towards the middle of the river, and he actually makes it into Hungary. Obviously, I don't know any of these things. He meets with with the guide in Hungary. They come to Austria, to Vienna, to the meeting place three days later. And of course, I'm expecting my wife to arrive. 
And here's this one guy that shows up and says, well, I'm sorry to tell you that your wife was arrested. Mm. So, you know, it's like your whole world is, is just crashing down on you because of what just happened. In that moment, I, I, I just prayed that God will find a way, some kind of miraculous way for this to happen. So history uh, tells us that actually right during that, that time, there were signs of revolution, uh, revolutionary movements in Romania. I mean, our life was happening like in the middle of these very historic movements, historic uh, things that were happening. After 45 years of oppressive communist regime, Romanians actually were, were just, just had enough and they were rising up against the government. So during the month of December of 1989, actually the revolution happened in Romania from different cities in different parts of the country, people just uh, had enough and rose up against the government, against the dictator, the former president, uh, Ceausescu, who was just a, a killer, uh, an evil dictator, just uh, destroyed so many lives and literally killed hundreds of thousands of people, uh, innocent pe- people there. So when my wife was arrested, they took her uh, to her home city um, after several days of arrest, and they let her go home waiting for the trial because of the baby. So in December, when she was supposed to go to the trial, because of what just happened, what was happening in Romania with the revolution, uh, the courts and everything just just paused and everybody was waiting to see what happened. So by the end of December of 1989, the communist government was overthrown. The dictator was uh, apprehended and, and executed. The whole country was just in in a disarray. So I was watching the news in Austria about what's happening in my country and obviously worrying about my wife and baby and their safety. So when we were able to connect by phone, she told me that she heard the rumor that uh, they're going to give passports for the first time because only communists had passports, not the average person uh, during the communist regime. So and she's like, well, I think I'm going to wait a couple of weeks and go some, do some preparations. And, and I said, no, you're not. You're going to go to the passport the first hour when it opens. Get the passport from the police department. Put the baby in the, in the train and come to Vienna. Come on over because you don't know. These are volatile times. And so the 4th of January, 1990, Leah, my wife, uh, and our son Flavius, came to Austria by train in freedom with a passport. Wow. That's how they made it out. That's incredible. And so how long between that time when you guys all reunited in Vienna to when you moved to the U.S.? What's the time frame there? Basically at the end of the year, so just about 11 months, almost a year, uh, we were still in the refugee camp there in Austria. But I do want to make a a note about my wife um, because the timing is significant. So she swam on the river for six hours while she wasn't, she was just floating in, you know, in, at the end of November. So you can imagine how cold that was and, and difficult. And, and that really marked her life uh, emotionally in so many different ways. But this year, you know, after all these years, she made the goal to face her fear of water and fear of that, uh, you know, open water. And, She's been an athlete for the past several years, running marathons and different things like that. But this year, she made the goal to, by facing her fear of open water, to prepare for an Ironman. So I'm happy to announce that um, with that emotional baggage, she was able to actually face this. And 
two weeks ago, she ran her first Ironman in Arizona, completed uh, under 15 hours, the swim, the biking, and the run. So I'm just so incredibly proud of her and how she dealt with something that overshadowed her memory and her past in such dramatic time. And yet she turned around, faced that fear, and she achieved this incredible task. That's incredible. Well, you know, congrats to your wife, obviously. Tell her that we're all rooting for her for her second one. That's really incredible. I mean, yeah, what a traumatic time. And years later, she was able to turn that around and kind of stare it in the face and overcome it in such an incredible way. I mean, very few, in the grand scheme of things, very few people get to partake in Ironman uh, events, right? It's very hard. It's very difficult. And for her to not just like, you know, there are probably much simpler ways or simpler things she could have tackled to overcome that. And she chose a pretty difficult, hard one, right? You know, she could have said, like, I'm going to go river rafting or something, you know, right. it's exactly. way less intense. And she went like all the way, which I think is a mark of, you know, my my father, uh, way different story and circumstances. But he left Guatemala as a when he was a young child, he he ran away from home because it was so dangerous and got on a plane and came here. Uh, it was during during the Civil War in Guatemala. And, you know, so I'm the son of an immigrant slash refugee. And you guys are obviously immigrants and refugees. And as I meet more of them, there's a beautiful like resilience and strength that I mean, like I'm, I'm sitting here listening to your story. And I'm like, you know, I hope there's a book. I hope there's a movie. I hope there's a way to, you know, to communicate this further, because I just think there's such a not to praise you, not to praise your wife, not to like it's not about you necessarily, even though you were central figures in this, but it is just about like how tough we are as humans, how much we can overcome. Like those are incredible circumstances from living on the streets in Budapest, from, you know, sneaking on another train to Austria, you know, running across the border from Romania to Hungary, uh, then, then not knowing what's going to happen with your wife and kids and her, you know, floating in a river for six hours. Like all of those things are just just mind boggling. And I definitely, what I love to do now, because I know I can see very obvious ways that the, the things that those circumstances strengthened you for the work you're doing today, right? So you are part uh, in the medical industry, you're part pastor, you're part father and husband, and then we've got vital solutions too. Okay, now from that point in time where you guys made it to the US years and years ago, how did your current life and career and situation how did that develop? Because that's just interesting that you ended up, I think you alluded to it in the beginning, but you ended up doing things that were very integral parts of, of your upbringing as a kid. So how did that happen? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I have to begin uh, stemming by saying that I'm just so grateful that this country welcomed us, embraced us, gave us the opportunity, you know, to just begin a new life. And you know, while we came with, with nothing uh, but, but a dream, but a hope that we won't be persecuted. We will be left alone to just live life and raise our kids and have a have a family here and have a just a decent chance to 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 live. We've been given so much more than that uh, from being able to pursue degrees that we couldn't pursue back in Romania because of the persecution and because of the denied opportunities. And you know, uh, my wife actually uh, has three different degrees: uh, an associate, a bachelor, and a master's degree in theology and. And I was able to also pursue uh, degrees in nursing. And, and one of the reasons why I, I just felt drawn into that is um, 
is really the experience that I had as a, as a child with my father being sick for all those years and with no proper care and no, no cure for uh, tuberculosis. And uh, I ended up actually going to nursing school and uh, working in, in hospitals. And then later on, just uh, felt compelled to start my own business uh, as a geriatric specialist. And in fact, uh, this month we're celebrating 22 years since we've been doing elder care in, in this area. And our company is doing really well, providing uh, round-the-clock care for elderly it's amazing how God used some of the challenges that we've experienced, some of the difficulties that we couldn't understand why we're going through at that time as a motivation for us to learn how to care for people, how to provide actual medical care, how to provide emotional support, or the passion that I have for the homeless community, because I used to be in those shoes. I used to be on those streets. I know, I know how it feels to not be showered for six weeks. I know how it feels to to eat, you know, behind buildings or to hide uh, in in canals or and so when I see a homeless, I I can look in his eyes and like I know what you're going through. So let's let's chat. Let's let me see how I can help. So God has just given us these incredible opportunities to just use our experience and the the word I used earlier, uh, resilience. It's really. <laughs> it's the beautiful thing that comes out of uh, hardships is we're grown as human beings and the Lord is is giving us the strength, the resilience to get past that and to turn that around and to use it for good and to make a difference in the world. So so on the professional side uh, of things, so I became an RN and pursued uh, later on a master's degree in nursing. And for the past 10 years, in addition to our elder care business, I've been teaching nursing at uh, Northwest University here in, in Seattle, been able to influence young minds and young uh, future nurses in, in that direction as well. At a spiritual level, uh, my wife and I and the whole family have been involved in, in serving in churches in one way or another. And uh, about five years ago, we planted a, a church here in Seattle, a very intercultural church called Elevation Church. And uh, through that, uh, God's given us the opportunity to start uh, more campuses and to reach different people, both here uh, around Seattle, where we have a couple of campuses. And um, in the past few years, we've been opening a lot of elevation churches in Kenya. So things kind of evolved and developed because we weren't afraid of, of, of doing and going where, where we haven't been before or doing things that we haven't done before because all our life uh, was, you know, starting fresh or pioneering things and developing new things. So, and maybe kind of in parallel with this, uh, we've been uh, going to Africa doing medical camps and medical missions for a number of years. But about five years ago, during one of the trips uh, while I was in Kenya, working with the Maasai tribe, uh, doing medical camps, I felt this uh, compelling desire to, to have a a better understanding or a clearer direction on how to make a difference in one community. So I felt like this dream was being born in my heart that it was initially done in like an image, a symbolism. I, uh, and I felt like in my heart, I was seeing a Band-Aid that was being put on, but then later would fall off. Whereas as a medical professional and as a pastor, as a person, as a human being, I can do better than putting a Band-Aid over a major wound, a major problem. So I felt this message from God saying, stop putting Band-Aids and, and actually begin 
a long-term solution for these major problems in this community. So out of all of that, as well, I don't know what that means, but maybe I'll look into what I, what I can do more than just coming with these medical camps for three days and giving them some medications or uh, cleaning some wounds and cover them with dressing, but actually do something greater. And came back to Seattle, met with a friend uh, who is from Kenya and say, you know, here's what's on my heart. Uh, what do you think? Would you pray with me to see what the Lord wants us to do, what, what this means? Because I want to make a difference, at least in one community. I don't want to just walk around and actually transform, change a community. And if you really think about it, before you can uh, teach people, before you can talk to them about God, before you educate them, any of those things, you got to stabilize them medically. You, you got to heal them. You got to make sure they have a heart, they have a pulse, that they breathe. You know, the very basic, and we call this in medicine, vital signs. We check their heart rate. We check, you know, blood pressure, things like that. And I felt like that's where we were. How can we take care of the vital signs in this community? And then we can talk about community development and all of these other things. So this friend of mine looked over the, the table. We were at a coffee shop in Seattle. And he's like, are you serious about this? What do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. Maybe God wants me to build a hospital for the Maasai tribe. And he started laughing. He said, well, um, if you're serious about this, I'll give you five acres of land for free. Hmm. Yeah. So I said, I am. If you give me the land, I will build a hospital. We shook hands. And in that moment, we founded Vital Solutions from the idea of vital science and finding solutions for long-term problems and began this great, incredible, challenging, exciting, and exhausting work that we do through our nonprofit Vital Solutions. And I'm happy to say that uh, last year, we were able to complete our first hospital in the Maasai Mara. Um, yeah, we raised uh, over $100,000, and, and I didn't know how, but we were able to do it with, with a lot of friends and, and family and support. And uh, since we've opened it last year in March, uh, we have treated over 2,000 patients. We have assisted in giving births to over 30 babies that otherwise would have been born in, in mud huts and in very unsanitary and, and challenging uh, circumstances. Now they come to our uh, hospital and they have their babies uh, being born there. And, and it just transformed the whole community. And I felt like when we are done with it, that we no longer put Band-Aids on with big wounds, but we're actually coming with real vital solutions for their life. That's incredible. So what does it look like over there? Like, so you're not over there full time. Like, what does the team look like over there? How, how, do, how are things run? This is amazing. I mean, I'm super like thankful and impressed and all of that. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And I'm, I love that you had the thought of not wanting to continue putting band-aids on both metaphorically and physically, like just putting, you know, quick solutions, right? Because the reality is people want more than that. They want to be self-sustaining. They want they don't like handouts like, you know, those are necessary for a certain period of time after disasters and during during very difficult times. Right. But people want to survive and not just survive, but thrive. And so by giving them this long term solution, you're actually giving them hope of like, no, we can actually like let's stop just surviving and actually thrive. And so I love the intention with the name Vital Solutions. But what what's happening right now over there? What does it look like while you're not there? Yeah, so Vital Solutions aims to really, you know, we aim to solve basic needs in low resource regions by empowering those communities. In this case, the Maasai community, 
with the knowledge and with the tools to become self-reliant or self-sustained. So from the beginning, we approached even the project of building this hospital, a 16-bed hospital, by instead of bringing machinery, we actually hired locals. It took a year longer, but the community developed trust in us. Because that was when I when I went back after my conversation with my, my buddy, I went back to to meet with the uh, with the tribe elders, and they're like, "Why would you do this?" And I explained. I said, uh, "If you want this help, but I don't want to be coming with you know be the white guy bringing money and no no. I want to find a way to help you and empower your community and teach your young adults to go to nursing school to medical school." And they gave me one condition. And I thought that was kind of strange. I said, yes, we agree to this. We'll let you build this hospital here. But if you promise that you're going to hire locals. And I said, absolutely. That's the goal. So we hired locals. At some point, we had 80 men and women from the Maasai tribe carrying water, bringing tools, bringing sand, rocks when we were building the, the actual hospital. And now, since we launched it uh, uh, last year in March, we have several member uh, part of our team at Valor Solutions in the Maasai Mara. We have a nurse, an uh, administrator, lab, like the whole team that a hospital requires and able to provide the care. And all of them are locals, are local Kenyans. The majority are actually from the Maasai tribe so that we can actually change that community. I'm, I'm thinking specifically at a, a, about this particular lady. Her name is Lucy, and she gave us permission to use her name. She um, has six kids. Her husband has a job uh, caring, uh, taking care of cattle. She volunteered with us. She didn't want to be paid. I just, she said, I want to help because I want my kids to have a place where they can be cared for. Well, we saw her passion for what we're doing, and we hired her. And she only spoke uh, Maasai. So she learned Swahili and some English. And now she is one of our team members there, works as a cook and housekeeper, and we give her a salary, and it changed her life. And now she wants to go to nursing school. So it's just a transformation of a person as part of this bigger project, transforming the community by making sure they're medically stable. Then we're doing campaigns for the kids. Then we're doing education, health education, and illness prevention, and and slowly change that community by you know changing the mentality of of each person that we work with whether they're part of the team or their patients or they're just members of the community so it's all about finding these solutions giving them to the locals to run with them and be able to carry them on so we have a great team on the ground doing the work and uh, we're actually opening our second location in uh, one of the largest slums in africa called the kibera slums in nairobi so we're really excited about that. In fact, if everything goes well, and by February of 2018, we're going to be launching that. And uh, we already have the building. And we're just really excited to be able to get into these uh, most incredible places where there's, there's such a great need. And they don't have the resources. They don't have the solutions to these very vital problems. And we're excited to have our, our, our second location ready to go. And by the end of 2018, we're going to have a third location in Western Kenya if everything goes well. So that's the plan. Man, that is so exciting. Thank that's you. incredible. I'm over here kind of like fist pumping in the air. This is really cool. This is really cool stuff. 
So this is really exciting. You've shared your story. You took a long time there, which I needed you to. I wanted you to. That's an amazing story. And I think people are going to be both challenged and encouraged and helped by hearing about the resilience and the strength that you were forced to build up because of your situation, but and how you carry that into your career, directly addressing things that have that had affected you growing up. You now wanted to be an agent of change with those things. So all that's amazing. One question, why do you do it? Why do you give a damn? Why do you give all of these dams? Like if you could sum it up in a sentence or two, what's kind of the, the thing that's driving you each and every day when you get up and need to continue to, you know, teach nursing and uh, lead Vital Solutions and, uh, you know, lead your church and your family and all of that? Like what's pushing you to do it? I've been given an opportunity that many of my friends don't have it because they got shot because they died swimming across the river or they got shot in the back trying to escape communist Romania. And I didn't. I survived. So in some ways, I, um, I carried that burden of making a difference with my life, not just you know having a, a good life, making money and taking care of my family, but actually making a difference in the world because I'm alive and I can. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, well, I think you're doing super well with that, man. I mean, obviously, keep going and in all of that, but uh, you're doing well. You're doing well. Um, This is a random question that I've been thinking about since like minute 20 of our conversation. Whatever happened to Theo? (laughs) So, uh, so he he survived. He's in Austria. He lives in Vienna. Okay. Yeah. So he was good. and uh, we reconnected uh, 20 years or so after all of that happened. Uh, we reconnected in Vienna when, during one of my travels there. But I've never reconnected, and I don't know how to find the, the guy that was actually apprehended because there were three of us when, yeah. we, when we tried to escape. So there are still areas of life that uh, I would love to, to have closure, you know? So, sure. No, yeah. totally. Totally. If someone is listening right now, they're obviously feeling different things, right? You've you've made them, you've helped them think deeply about some things. They've heard this kind of inspiring story. If they really want to begin, you know, out of this conversation, out of what they're feeling, they want to begin to act. They want to begin to do. They want to figure out what their give a damn thing is. What are just some basic, simple pieces of advice? One, two, three of them. Just kind of quickly shoot from the hip, like, but what would you recommend to them if they're feeling something right now? How would you encourage them to like use what they're feeling and actually do something or go, you know, fill in the blank? Well, that's a great question. Well, first of all, don't feel sorry for me. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Hmm. You know, you're alive. You can make a difference. You have breath in your lungs. You can make a difference. Uh, Next, don't look at yourself because the more you look inward, the more you look at you. Uh, the more you want to do things for yourself. But what if all of the challenges that you went through, all the stuff that you've done in life, good or bad, had touched you some things that actually you can use as tools to empower others? Man, it's it's really all about others, helping others. The moment you make that transaction in your, in your own emotions, in your own mind, you, you're going to be able to really transform the lives of others. What are you good at? What do you love doing? Use that, but for the benefit of others. Don't think, well, I'm going to do this thing so I can make more money. No, no. How can you use that talent, that skill that you have to transform the life of somebody that cannot give you absolutely anything in return? There's no greater feeling in the world other than helping somebody that cannot help you back. That's what it's at. 
So I'm just uh, encouraging everybody that's listening to your podcast, man, look around you. Sometimes we just ask God to open our eyes to the needs that people have, whether they're across the street or across the world. There are people that are simply in need, uh, whether it's a conversation or mentoring, uh, which, by the way, that's a big thing of what we do. Mentor somebody. Tell somebody that they're doing good at what they encourage them. I woke up this morning with this word in my in my head. I don't know why, but here it is. We have power in our words to heal or to hurt. Use them to heal people around you, not to hurt them. Your words have power. And then when you couple the words, when you follow the words with actions to heal, to restore, to empower, to encourage, man, it's just going to change the world. So go for it. Dream big, work hard, and you know, care for the people that God places on your path, whatever you are. Boom. Those are great. Thank you. I think those are very tangible, right? Uh, there's nothing theoretical about what you just said. It's, those are just very simple things that people can begin to uh, think about and execute on now. So thank you for those. Uh, last big question, Ben. Part of it is hypothetical. The not hypothetical part is that, you know, you have been spared from death many times, but none of us can avoid it. Ultimately, you will, your physical body will die someday. You're going to die. Hopefully it's many, many years from now. But the point is we're all going to die. The hypothetical part is that for some odd reason, I've been chosen to give your eulogy someday. So imagine the room, big room, all the people that you and your team have helped through Vital Solutions. Theo's there, your your wife is there, your kids are there, all the people, your, the nursing students that you've been able to help, all the homeless people that you were able to identify with and help them out. Like everybody's there, right? The people that you've affected are all in that room. They're there to both mourn and celebrate your life. And again, for some reason, I've been chosen to give your eulogy. What do you hope on that day in a few sentences, what do you hope that I'll say about your life and legacy? Man, that's that's deep. That's powerful. What I would hope to my legacy will be that um, I lived with passion. I cared deeply with compassion. And every person that I've encountered was better because they met me. That's it for me. There it is. That's a, a worthwhile legacy to pursue, uh, Ben. And I hope that you continue to pursue that. Looks like you are. And um, I mean, because that's what it's all about, right? Like, you know, our lives are so short, literally. Like, I don't know what where you are right now, but I, I'm in a podcast studio. I get hit by a bus on the way home and it's gone. But our legacy, hopefully, the, our work and our legacy will hopefully outlast us for millennia to come. Like, again, not for our sake, not for our name on some plaque somewhere, but just that we did, we did work that was meaningful enough that it lived on, you know? So that's great, man. As we wrap up, if people want to find out more about you, about the work you're doing, about Vital Solutions, where can they go look? And honestly, like this is an honest question. Is there some sort of like a book or something going to come out eventually about your story? Because I would love for people to, um, well, read that someday. You know, the fuller story. There's a lot more. There's a million details that you did not tell me in those 30 minutes that you shared your story. Uh, yes, we. my wife and I decided that we want to write a book. We're, uh, we're praying for the right uh, path for that. And we've been approached a few times about a movie. We haven't agreed or because we think the book has to be done first. And hopefully we find the right partnership uh, where we can write that book and, and share uh, about the, the resilience that, that we have that comes from God and that there is hope regardless of what circumstances you're facing. There's always hope as long as you're alive. Uh, for more details about the work that we do in Kenya, 
please visit us at vitalsoul.org, V-I-T-A-L-S-O-L.org, vitalsoul.org. And uh, you'll be able to participate or join on a, on a trip to Kenya or, uh, you know, would love to have you with us to make a difference in the lives of people in, in Africa, kids and families. And, uh, and we'll be happy to share or answer your question. And, uh, and Nick, thank you for the opportunity to share with you and with your listener uh, a little bit about our life. Of course. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. And I'll definitely, I would love to join you on one of those trips sometime, maybe get over there and figure out a way of telling more of the stories and getting getting the word out more. But um, Ben, thank you so much. This was this was an absolute pleasure um, for us, for me and for us. And I know that your story is going to help so many people. It's, it's going to be the spark that they need to stop uh, screwing around and start, you know, loving people, serving them, helping them out. So thank you so much. Uh, we'll do this again soon. Wonderful. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate you and uh, we'll be in touch. Thanks, friends, for joining Ben and me today. I hope you feel inspired and equipped to give more dams today at the beginning of 2018 and in an ongoing way throughout 2018 and 2019. Let's keep going. If you enjoyed our conversation, go let Ben know on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Ben11, B-E-N, the number one, and then one spelled out. So B-E-N, the number one, O-N-E. Hit him up on Twitter. Let him know what you thought. I know he would love to hear from you. Visit the Vital Solutions website at vitalsoul.org, as he pointed out. I'd love for you to follow me, at Nick Lapara everywhere on social media. And you can follow Let's Give a Damn, the podcast and other things that we're doing at Let's Give a Damn everywhere. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us out a ton. That helps give us some visibility in a platform where there are 150, 160,000 active podcasts. That helps elevate us a little more. Check out other opportunities to contribute to what we're doing at patreon.com forward slash let's give a damn. There are a bunch of you already giving there, and I would love for you to join me there. And please share this with your friends. True story. I got a text from a friend a couple nights ago. They were eating at a restaurant. Someone that they were hanging out with overheard that they were talking about my podcast. That person piped up, and I don't even know who this person is. They piped up and said, oh, we love that podcast too. We found out about it this way and that way. And now we used it as homework for a group that we're a part of. So they're using the podcast. And so you never know by sharing, by speaking out loud, what this podcast is doing for you and to you, who it can help and who you can encourage and who might become a new fan and friend of the podcast. Okay, that's it for this week. First podcast of 2018. I'm so pumped that you're here with me. This podcast conversation was made possible by your support on Patreon, by my producer and editor, Chad Snavely, and by our amazing guest today, Ben Sterchuk. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening. I love you all. Bye for now.